0: tape machine on. There we go. Let's, let's, let's try that again. Our Father, we, we thank you for this time that we are able to fellowship together as, as uh, sons and daughters of the living God. And we thank you that you have promised your presence to be with us. And we know you're here this hour. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the Spirit of God is the one who illumines our minds with the truth and enables us to live in accordance with that truth. Father, we live in a world which is full of lies and uh, the enemy is endeavoring in, by every means possible to lead the, even the elect away if he can. And we pray that we will stand strong with, uh, in your strength and in your word and we will actually encourage others to stay the path and to walk according to your divine plan. Lord, bless us today. Bless the word as it's proclaimed in every class and in the services of this day. And we ask that somehow, some way, you will bring many into your kingdom as a result of the fellowship of believers this day in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday, we studied the 15th chapter of the book of Joshua, <clears throat> which describes the allotment of the land of Canaan to the tribe of Judah. And I noted to you, and I hope you have this map available to you, because I'll be referring to it several times uh, this morning. It's uh, not terribly profound, but at least it gives you a general concept of where the uh, tribal borders were. They were given the largest piece of land in all of Canaan, and they were given the southernmost piece of Canaan. And we noted that uh, last week. The heart of the chapter, however, was the description of Caleb's conquest. You remember that Caleb had come to Joshua and asked for a particular piece of land. Now, he is coming first. There's already been, of course, the allotment of land to Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan River. But let me just leap ahead here just for a moment to say... Reminding you again that Joshua and Caleb were the two faithful spies who 45 years before had said, yes, we can conquer the land and stood against the other ten who said they could not. Joshua and Caleb now will be sort of the beginning and the end in some ways, the Alpha and the Omega of the, of the bringing together of the inheritance of Canaan because Caleb will ask for the first peace and he will be granted Hebron. And, and the, in the 15th chapter, it describes the conquest of Hebron and, and neighboring cities uh, under the leadership of Caleb. And then the, the Omega, the tail, tail end will be, Joshua himself will, will receive the last piece of land in all of Canaan. And so they kind of sandwich it all in between, these two great men of God. One of the reasons that Caleb asked for the right to capture Hebron was he wanted to be an example to all of Israel that we can do it. We can capture the most strategically defended place in all of the land and and we can capture every place in the land according to the word of God. And, And so he captured Hebron with its clan of Anakim, with the giants who were there to defend it and the city was taken by him. So what excuse does any other tribe have for not capturing all the assigned land and the assigned cities within their territory? They have no excuse, even though many of them, even the tribe of Judah, will not capture all that was allotted to them. We're informed in that same passage about Caleb's nephew, a man by the name of Othniel, and we discover that he is he's kind of cut in the same mold of Caleb as Caleb. And he will capture the next city on down, which is Debir. And then we will note uh, later that uh, he will become the very first judge of Israel. After the land has been settled, Othniel will be the first man who will rise to judge Israel. And and of course, the word judge, and we'll talk about that more at that point, it isn't really as we think of a judge today, Uh, but it's more of a charismatic leader raised up to give uh, military victory at a given time. Also, in the 15th chapter, the last half of that chapter is a list, a long list, of city after city after city. And we talked about the different regions of Judah, and we didn't go into detail of all the cities, except there are over a hundred cities and towns listed there that were supposed to be occupied by the tribe of Judah. Now, given the tenor of the chapter, this is what Judah is conquering, and uh, this is what Caleb has done. The last verse, and, and I talked about it at the very end of class last time, the last verse seems out of character. For it says, Now as for the Jebusites, this is Joshua 15:63. Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day, meaning the day of the writing of the book of Joshua. Jerusalem. We associate Jerusalem with Israel forever, you know. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, first became important in Scripture when you go all, all the way back to the days of Melchizedek and Abraham. And yet here it is a city that was within the tribal, we at the very, very northern end of the tribal allotment of uh, of uh, Judah. On, on your map, it would be way, way, way up here at the very top of the Judah, right next to Benjamin, almost on the borderline with Benjamin up there, would be where Jerusalem was located. And Jerusalem, you remember, and we talked about this, led the coalition of cities against Joshua. And that coalition was overwhelmed and defeated. And the king of Jerusalem was, was defeated. And yet, if that city was occupied, it was only temporarily occupied. It was not permanently occupied because, as we see here, we're told the sons of Israel could not drive them out. And they read that quotation to you uh, last week from Donald Campbell in his commentary on Joshua in which he questions whether what is meant there is could or would. <laughs> could not or would not. Yes, Good Dennis.
1: Were, were they not the ones that made the agreement that they would not attack <laughs> them? They, they, they played like they were from a far distant land. Were they not among the Jebjahites? Were the Jebjahites no. among that group? No. Really?
0: Right. It, it was the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were ju- actually not too far north of Jerusalem. Uh, the Gibeonites uh, were located up at Gibeon, and uh, they were the ones, and, and about four cities altogether, uh, had, were occupied, the, the, the ethnic group was Hivite. They were the Hivites, and uh, so they, they were the ones that made this agreement, but the Jebusites had not.
1: My Bible says differently, but it's a different interpretation. Your
0: Bible says it, or your...
1: Bible. It says Hivites he- and Jebusites back in uh, chapter 9. Oh. So I don't you mean know,
0: just talking about them. That
1: group that, that did the ruse. Sorry.
0: No, that's all right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that may be why they couldn't drive them out, because they made an agreement. That's the, verse, uh, I'm
0: sorry.
1: Verse, verse what? Uh, chapter 9, verse uh, uh, 1, right at the uh, last two lines of verse 1. Yeah. It's, uh, mine says... Uh, um, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, he- Hivites, and Jebusites. They came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Right. However, um, now, my understanding, they, they were the ones that did the, the Rus, the. Uh, the, the,
0: the, the Hivites. Um, mm-hmm. The Hivites were.
1: Oh, but not, not the other, not the Jebusites. Well, it's Hivites and Jebusites, but I don't know.
0: Well, you see, what it's, it's listing all of these uh, ethnic groups that are part of the land. The Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All together as the groups who were living there. But then later on, it specifically deals with the Hivites. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The, verse 7, the men of Israel said to the Hivites... Perhaps you live within our land, but I could understand how that would be because when you get all these ites together after a while (laughs) the stalactites and the stalagmites and But that's good hey somebody's studying here and (laughs) that's that's great now what is interesting is that It would not be until the days of David that the city of Jerusalem would become permanently a part of the Jewish domain I shouldn't say Jewish the Israelite domain let's look at uh, 2nd Samuel chapter 5 beginning at verse 4 I better get in Samuel David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they, the Jebusites, said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away, uh, proclaiming in their own hearts, David can't enter here. See, Jerusalem was powerfully walled. And they figured, hey, this city can stand. It's stood amongst Israel all these days. And what's David going to do? Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach. And he's, of course, taunting them here. The lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the, la- the blind or the lame shall not come into this house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built around from the Milo and inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him." Now, we've been, we've seen that a water tunnel. We've been in it. Uh, you were there too, weren't you, <coughs> Dr. Woman: <Walmart>? oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I just waited at the
0: end. I can understand that. Um, the, uh, the uh, Tunnel of Hezekiah, what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel, uh, extends from the spring of Gion at the north side, uh, south side, I'm sorry, of the city of Jerusalem. And it goes for some 600 meters through the rock, uh, right through solid rock, and comes out on the other end at the, at the pool of Siloam. And uh, if, if you can get somebody to open the gate there, you can go through the through the tunnel, and it is claustrophobic because there are places you can't even walk straight upright in the tunnel. You have to lean over like this, you know, and there's water in it at various depths depending what time of the year it is, and it could be to your knees or it could be to your waist, you know as you go through this, uh, this uh, water tunnel. But right at the spring of Gahon entranceway, you'd go in a little ways, and before you get into Hezekiah's tunnel, you can see the shaft that went upward into the old Jebusite city. They would come down through this shaft to get the water from the spring, but the spring wasn't, uh, there was no opening to the outside except where the water flowed out. Uh, there was no tunnel dug in those days, uh, not till the days of Hezekiah. But obviously, David had discovered about the water tunnel. And that is how they captured the city, sort of a Trojan horse thing, except there was no horse. They, they went inside and then went up through the water tunnel and came out inside the city and were able to capture the city that way. And that uh, water shaft still exists today uh, over there. Now, in this passage, it talks about the Milo. The Milo was the citadel. It was sort of like that last place of defense in, in most of the ancient cities. And from there, the city radiated out. Now, we're not talking about a very large city. The the city of Jerusalem was very small in terms of square acres. (laughs) Well, I guess acres don't come in square acres. Um, In acres of land, Uh, we're we're just talking about a a very, very uh, small area. You could put virtually the whole city of Jerusalem in Davis Day on the Simpson College campus. So, uh, it it wasn't very large. And uh, it would be expanded under Solomon uh, but uh, still would be fairly small. you go today to the to the uh, old city as it 's called the walled city uh, it 's only about a square mile inside the old walls so it 's never been uh, you know as far as a walled city it 's never been one of the larger cities, but of course it was a very uh, strong city uh, to defend itself. Well, if we move on now to the so so let me just summarize to say that Jerusalem was dwelling within the land of Israel, occupied by the Israelites for several hundred years before it was captured by David and then became the capital. Okay? <clears throat> and, Lord willing, and if we keep at it here um, someday, we, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, where Saul had his headquarters, and, and well, of course, we saw David was headquartered in Hebron before he took Jerusalem as, as the kingdom was established. And before that, of course, there was no capital because it was tribal. The whole country was tribal. The closest thing to a capital was Shiloh, where the uh, tabernacle was kept. Chapters 16 and 17 of Joshua, described the territorial allotment that was given to the sons of Joseph, that is, to Ephraim and Manasseh. Though the tribes received, as you see here, a central portion, Ephraim almost dead center in the land, and Manasseh immediately to the north. Now, half the tribe of Manasseh had already been given land in Transjordan. So Manasseh had two pieces of land, sometimes called West Manasseh and East Manasseh. Not by them, but uh, by people who draw up maps. Um, So, like Judah, um, Ephraim and Manasseh were not very successful in driving out all of the Canaanites from within land. I suppose we could all spiritualize this and say, you know, it's sort of like we sometimes don't get all the Canaanites driven out of our lives, you might say. Something has a hold on us and, and needs somehow to be outweighed to in the midst of Ephraim. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced labor. We've run across Gezer before. Gezer was the city, you remember? When uh, when Joshua was capturing was was attacking the cities of the southern confederation and he was laying siege to the city of Lachish, and we're told there that the army of Gezer came down to support Lachish. But the army of Gezer did not really uh, help Lachish because now did the city fall, but they, uh, Joshua defeated the army of the city of Gezer and uh, drove them out. Whether at that time... Joshua's forces captured Gezer momentarily, we don't know, but certainly it was not permanent because as we see here, it was still occupied by the Canaanites living in the midst of the tribe, well, not in the midst, over on the edge of the tribe of Ephraim. Was it like in the case of Jerusalem that they couldn't drive them out? Or maybe more that they wouldn't drive them out. Because what did they become? The passage tells us they became forced laborers. Well, see, that was reserved for the Hivites. The Hivites had made this treaty, and so they were allowed to live in the land, but they were going to be, in effect, laborers on behalf of Israel. But it seems like the other tribes are finding it convenient to keep a few Canaanites around to do some of the dirty work. Which, of course, is in direct opposition to what the Lord had commanded. Same was true of the, of the tribe of Manasseh, however. If you look at the 17th chapter, verse, beginning at verse 11. And in Issachar and Asher, Manasseh had Bethshan, and its towns, and Iblem and its towns, and the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Tanakh, and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, the third is Napheth. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities, because the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And it came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But they did not drive them out completely." It's getting to be an old story, a kind of a constant repetition here as you move from the initial disaster at Gibeon to the occupation of the land. Now, when we look at this particular passage, we're not talking about an isolated little place like Jerusalem or an isolated little place like Gezer. We're talking about some very, very powerful centers, many of which are very close to each other. Bethshon... Uh, is, is one of the most powerful cities of the Canaanites. It's up on a mound. It had walls around it. It would become a, a very uh, dangerous city in Israel for many, many centuries, in fact, ahead. And then it, uh, it mentions several other cities which are on the southern edge of the Jezreel Valley. Every one of those cities was located where a, a major, what would we call it today, arroyo, a royal, um, a valley, uh, comes through from the coast, through the mountains, into the Jezreel Valley, and at wherever that valley debouches into the Jezreel Valley, there, one of these cities was located, beginning at Megiddo, and uh, Megiddo was one, and uh, Iblaim is another one, and Tanakh is yet another one. These were all very powerful fortified cities located on, on, on low-level mounds, and uh, they, they guarded strategic uh, crossroads, right on the southern edge of the, of the Jezreel Valley. And so we're told in the 12th verse here that they couldn't take possession because the Canaanites persisted. The Canaanites persisted. Hmm. Certainly as it was in the case of the city of Jerusalem, the Canaanites persisted because the men of Manasseh did not persist in obedience to God. I, I think we've all noticed this, haven't we, in life? If we don't persist to do the will of God, the enemy is very persistent. And he will not stop his pressure. He will not stop his efforts to drag us back. It, it's the old fish in the river thing. If you're trying to go up river, there's no way to get up river but to swim against the current. As soon as you stop swimming, bam, it's down river. That's what the Christian life is. You you can't just sit back and relax and say, Boy, I'm going to take it easy. I've achieved my plateau in Christianity. I mean, it's like that. You're back down that plateau and several plateaus below. Uh, it's, It's this constant pursuit of God through the scripture, through prayer, through fellowship, learning to trust God. That's why there are so many obstacles that come along in life. You and I won't drive our roots deep in God if we aren't buffeted by strong winds. That's why there's so much trouble in life. So whenever the trouble stops, look out. (laughs) Then we're probably in, in greater trouble. Had the men of Manasseh persisted and said, God has given us this land. I don't care how powerful B'tshon is. I don't care how powerful Megiddo is. We will take those cities because God has said we will. But no, 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 no. They looked at these cities and their powerful walls. They looked at the iron chariots that were in the the, the, uh, fleet there of uh, defense for these cities. And they said, we can't do it. We can't do it. You know, it's the remnants of the old ten spies. Well, the walls are too big. There are giants there. We can't do it. Same kind of an attitude. It's an example of doing what was easy, capturing what was easy to capture, and not doing what God had said. They did what was right in their own sight, and that's what you find throughout the book of, I mean, when you read the book of uh, Judges, you get tired of that phrase after a while? And every man did what was right in his own sight. Every man did what was right in his own sight. I mean, it keeps being repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. As I was thinking about this, this brought to mind the, the passage that most of us are familiar with in the early part of the book of Revelation. I would just like to read a, a little part of it, a second chapter of Revelation. Uh, the second of the letters that uh, John wrote to the seven churches it's actually, this truth is in in virtually every one of these letters, but in in, uh, Revelation 2, 8, we read, To the angel of the church at Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and that you will have tribulation ten days. Ten days seems to be symbolic symbolic of a short period of time. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful till when? Till death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, and this word overcome keeps being repeated throughout these letters. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. If you drop down to verse 26, and he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the, vessel of the potter, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so what you find, repeated over and over again, is he who overcomes, he who perseveres to the end, he who persists, He or she who persists, persists. That's exactly what uh, the the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Ephraim, all the tribes, that's exactly what they did not do. They did not persist. It's too hard. We want to stop and and rest now. We're tired of fighting. You know, in the Christian life, I'm sorry, but there's no real long-term R&R. God gives us moments of R&R, yes, but there's no long-term R&R. There's no retirement in Christianity. can't say, well, I've been a Christian now for 65 years. I'm just going to retire and everything's going to be okay. Oh, no, it won't be. Because Satan has not retired. And Satan is not intending to retire. He is going to continue on until he is fired. <laughs> So it is up to us to overcome, to persist, to continue on. Be faithful in the midst of it all. Even when we don't understand what's going on, we don't understand this, this disease that racks our body, we don't understand what's happening to our family, we don't understand we're fired from our job, or whatever it is. Uh, we must persist in faith. Because that's the message of Scripture from one end clear to the other. A statement that we read there in chapter 17 at verse 11. Let me just read the verse again. And in Issachar and Asher, Manasseh had Bethshan and its towns, and Ibliam and its towns, etc. What that tells us is that the tribal borders were fluid. You know, we, we see these borders drawn on here. But they were fluid, they they were not absolutely set, because Manasseh actually possesses towns that were up in the territory that belonged to, as we read in this particular passage, uh, Issachar and Asher. Issachar right here, Asher over there. So, you know? It's not like, boy, I'm in the tribal area of uh, Issachar and nobody else dares cross our border and enter our Issachar land. No, that's not really the way it was. Issachar was to be centrally located here, but people could move from area to area. Once a family, however, had achieved a particular piece of property, they were supposed to keep that piece of property in the family in in perpetuity. Well, let's Look at uh, chapter uh, 17, verse 14. Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me only one lot and one portion for inheritance, since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed? (laughs) And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Parasites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. And the sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethshon and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You're a numerous people. And have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the hill country shall be yours. For, through, for for though it is a forest, you shall clear it, and to its farthest borders it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. You notice Joshua does not downplay the Canaanites. He not say, What are you afraid of those little pipsqueaks for? No, he says although they have chariots of iron, and all they are, though they are strong, you will overcome. There, I've heard preachers who have derided the devil and made him sound like he was just a puny little creature, you know, that anybody with an ounce of faith could easily defeat. I think that's foolish. Satan is a very powerful being. Uh, of course, the Lord is infinitely more powerful, but we don't toy with Satan. You know, we, we take him seriously because he's not a gentleman. The tribal leaders of Ephraim and Manasseh are complaining here. Now, that's unusual, isn't it?
1: <laughs>
0: For Israel to be complaining. And yet, in the New Testament, how many times do we read in, where Paul or others are writing saying, stop your complaining, stop your whining? No, it's, it's characteristic. It's human nature. And even though we're Christians, we have a tendency to complain complain and to whine, and uh, God is patient with us, but he'd like us to not do that. And uh, these, these two tribes are complaining. They haven't been given enough land, even though. I mean, you look at that map, and you say, what you talking about? Ephraim, Manasseh, and you put the two pieces of Manasseh together, and the tribal land of Ephraim, I mean, they have almost as much land as Judah. You now only Judah has a little bit more land. I mean, they should look at what Issachar and Zebulun have and Benjamin and Dan if they want to complain. So what are they really saying here? They are not saying we don't have enough square miles. What they're saying is we don't have enough square miles that have already been conquered. You see, they want it easy to settle land. Land without Canaanites with iron chariots. They wanted a land that was already a kind of turnkey walk in. We're just going to settle down. We're going to do it. And there's no problems here. No resistance, no enemy. That's what they wanted. And that's why they're complaining. They seem to have quickly forgotten what happened to the Canaanites with all their iron chariots at the waters of Merom, if you remember that battle. The chariots meant nothing. The Canaanites were crushed. And, and, and Joshua was told to destroy all the chariots. And he did. And hamstrung the horses. So what's with these iron chariots? Well, Joshua's not taken in by their complaint. He throws it all back to them as a challenge. He says, you're numerous and strong enough to conquer whatever you need. What are you whining about? You're numerous. You said that. God has promised victory over the Canaanites, whether they have iron chariots or not. which of course is a a powerful lesson to us because often we look at the circumstances of our problem (coughs) rather than at God. There's a problem in being too analytical. You know, if we spend too much time analyzing the problem that's in front of us and too little time learning about our God, then our problem looms bigger than our God. And that was what was happening to them These iron chariots and these fortified cities, whoa, you know, we can't handle that. No, they couldn't handle that. But God had said he'd drive them out. So what is it saying? They are not looking at their God, and they're not trusting in God. A very interesting statement is made in verse 18. It says there, it makes a reference to the hill country, and it says, it's forested, and you need to go clear it. Well, if you've ever been in Israel, you're saying, well, uh, (laughs) where are these forests that we have to clear here? As you look at the the, uh, the Ephraim hill country today, and you see it is barren and rocky, and you say, wow, did trees ever grow here? Yes, they did. It was actually forested at one time. And the forests, in fact, were so thick that uh, later on, uh, David's son Absalom get his hair hung up in a tree, which wasn't to his advantage. But nevertheless, there were trees there. And uh, but today, those forests are gone. Those trees were still there, obviously, in David's time. So what happened to the forests? Well, over the centuries, they were cut down. Now, David or, or Joshua's not telling him to go up in the mountains and clear-cut the whole thing. No, he's just saying, you know, cut out some plots and, and work on it there. Uh, actually, the land still had forests uh, even up until the days of Jesus Christ. But, you know, when Israel rejected Christ... Israel rejected the blessing of God in just about any way, shape, or form. And uh, they were, of course, held heavily under the heel of the Romans. And then in the second century, the Romans got sick and tired of the Jews rebelling. And so they just plain cleaned them out and scattered them out of the land. And they renamed the land Palestine, which means the land of the Philistines. And um, the Jews were, for the most part, chased out of their own land, just little pockets of them here and there, but no longer did they rule it with any authority at all. And that's when the land began to go into very rapid decline, and in the subsequent years under the Byzantines and then later under the Arabs and under the Turks, it was badly managed and deforested. Now Israel's trying to reforest the land today, but it's a big project. Yes, sir.
1: Just a little uh, John. Yeah, insight into that. When we were in Israel,
0: one of the guys we had said that during the time of the Turkish Empire, one of the bases for their tax was how many trees we had your property. <laughs> so you can imagine how? Isn't that an intelligent yeah. uh, tax system? <laughs> right. <laughs> That, actually, that's maybe what Joshua should have said. I'm going to tax you for every tree you got up there. Oh, we'll go clear it. Yeah, well, the Romans started the whole thing when they, when they laid siege to Jerusalem in the year 70. And they chopped down every tree within a diameter of 12 miles of the city in order to uh, use it to build um, war-making implements to attack the city which is, of course, when the Garden of Gethsemane was, lo- Gethsemane was lost as far as the trees that had actually been there in Jesus' day. But they have, of course, come back up from those same roots. So, as I mentioned uh, maybe some other time, you can go stand under the trees where Jesus prayed as long as you know that they're the trees that came up from the same roots but are not actually the trees as far as the upper part uh, of when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Let's look at the 18th chapter. We won't get far here, but let me just read the first seven verses as a way of uh, introduction here. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I may send them and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance. Then they shall return to me. And they shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall stay in its territory on the south, and the house of Joseph stay in their territory territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions, and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. For the Levites have no portion among you, because the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh also have received their inheritance towards the east beyond the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. They've moved the capital, or the headquarters. Somewhere along the line, they moved the headquarters from Gilgal, down in the valley, to Shiloh, up in the mountains. Shiloh is uh, not far from from this dot here in Ephraim, it's not that dot, but it's, it's fairly close to it. A little bit further to the east. This is the place where they set up the tent of meeting, which we know as the tabernacle. And it was there that the final division of the land was made. And Joshua is telling these people, you guys are still living like a bunch of nomads. I'm tired of you living ha- being headquartered around me here. Get out into your land. And and so he said, go out and and survey the land and bring back the description to me and then I'll cast lots before the Lord and then go live there. Complete the conquest because there were Canaanite pockets in all those territories. You see, in the general sweep of the invasion, yes, they had defeated the confederation of the south, they defeated the confederation of the north, but here and there were little pockets of Canaanites that had not been wiped out. There had been no search and destroy mission. You know to to just kind of clean sweep the land of all the Canaanites wherever it was too tough, they just went beyond. They just went on. They, they said, well, we 'll come back later, and, and then when later came along, they said, "Oh well it 's too strong, we can 't take it." And so they left the city. sometimes, of course, as, as time passed, they became strong enough to force the Canaanites because they were surrounded now by Israelites. To, uh, to move into a servile condition relative to them, but they allowed them to remain. And the big problem with allowing them to remain was that, and we see this emphasized as we go later in the book of Joshua, they taught Israel to worship pagan gods. They taught Israel to worship pagan gods. And if that isn't a statement of what's happened to the church down through history, where the church has not stayed by its roots and the church has been paganized. And I mean paganized big time. And even though there are within the paganized church a lot, some pockets of truth, there is still an awful lot that is not of God and, and which causes an awful lot of people... I mean, you, you read the statistics and they tell you that something like a billion and a half of the population of the world are, quote, Christian. Oh, really? You know, billion and a half... Well, that's because they live in countries where some branch of the church is predominant, you know. The United States and Canada are considered Christian nations by those who make maps of, you know, religious distribution. It's considered Christian in all of Latin America. But if you've been there, you know, well, <laughs> their definition of Christian is quite Canaanite. So this is the problem that Israel would face, and the result would be the same as allowing paganism into the church and, and adopting paganistic ideas, to forming a syncretistic religion, and what it's done to the church is exact parallel as we see what happened to Israel. Well, next week I'd like for us to look at the 18th chapter here and uh, talk about a little more detail how the distribution of the land took place.